and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Say Why to Drugs by Susie Gage and first broadcast live on the 3rd of September 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Hello. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Yes, I'm Dr. Susie Gage. I'm up here in Liverpool. Um, I may be disturbed by my cat at some point. At the moment, he's lying directly behind my chair. So if I get overexcited and push back, I may run him over, but hopefully not. (laughs) So have you ever taken drugs? That's what I would like to know. I'm willing to bet that there are quite a few people watching this who immediately think the answer is no. But actually, almost all of us have done and in fact probably do very regularly. By drug here, I'm referring to a psychoactive substance. So that's a substance that transiently alters the functioning of the brain, impacts on mood or has an effect on perception, how we view, see or experience the world around us. You might never have tried an illicit drug like MDMA or cannabis, but alcohol is a psychoactive substance. Nicotine is a psychoactive substance. Even caffeine is a psychoactive substance. So maybe there are one or two of you whose answer to that initial question is still no, but I doubt that there are that many. And if you have ever taken a drug, then you're not alone. Psychoactive substance use has been seen in ancient cultures across the, across the globe, And anthropologist Donald E. Brown actually believes that psychoactive substance use is a human universal. So that means it's seen across cultures and history and it puts it in a category alongside language, music and play. Drugs that occur in nature were often discovered and used ritualistically before recreationally. And this has been going on for a really, really long time. There's evidence of mescaline use from around 4000 B.C., and potentially tobacco, DMT and other substances around that time as well, and pretty much throughout history since. Other naturally occurring psychoactive substances include cannabis, caffeine and tea and coffee, and opium. And the drugs that have been synthesised, psychoactive substances that have been created by humans, were often done so in the process of developing medication, and often without any consideration of whether they might have psychoactive properties. That's not why they were. They weren't sort of discovered for their psychoactive properties, or few of them were. I think ketamine probably was, but not not very many. So MDMA, for example, which I'll talk about in a bit, was um, I'll talk about its discovery later on, but that's that was wasn't for its psychoactive properties. And you may well know the tale of Albert Hoffman discovering LSD. He was investigating the ergot fungus and um, for a pharmaceutical company to see whether it might have any useful properties. And on his 25th derivation of the molecule in this ergot fungus, he got a little bit on his fingers and felt, uh, well, very strange. He decided to experiment further And under the watchful eye of his assistant, um, a couple of days later, took what he believed to be a tiny, tiny dose of LSD uh, to document its effects. It ended up being uh, somewhat of an epic trip, as it turns out that the dose that he thought was very small is actually an incredibly high dose of LSD. And um, he had this trip, which included a now infamous bicycle ride home. Um, This self-experimentation is a bit of a theme around chemists of the past. 
Um, and Hoffman didn't have a great time during his trip. He uh, wrote quite detailed diaries, which you could actually um, get hold of and read now. And during this trip, he believed that his neighbour was a malevolent witch. Um, and he also genuinely thought that he was going to die at one point. However, he did also report um, enjoyable effects from taking LSD as well and stated that he didn't regret his experiment. He was pleased that he had experienced this this experience and believed that LSD uh, might hold great potential for the field of psychiatry. Um, but I digress a little bit. When I was growing up, um, it was very much the just say no era. We had very little drugs education at school. And what we did have was mainly presented as a criminal rather than a health concern. Um, one thing that really vividly sticks in my head is a policeman came to our school. And I think part of the reason I remember it is because his name was PC Ham, which I thought if you're going, if you're a policeman going into school, that's that's a tough thing to deal with but he brought in a suitcase with a glass front and it had lots of different illicit substances sort of pills and powders and whatnot in there and substances was very much presented as a there are criminal risks to doing this drugs drugs are bad just say no all drugs are bad and all drugs are the same um, and it was only when I went to university to study psychology that I saw that there was a whole fascinating field of research exploring how drugs affect the brain so what's going on now? What do we know about research now? Because if I'm talking about when I was an undergrad, that was <clears throat> several years ago. Uh, so I'm going to tell you um, about some of the cutting edge findings that I've been involved in myself and also the ones that I find fascinating that are going on all over the world right now. So my first proper introduction to the field of psychoactive substances research, other than this module that I did when I was an undergrad at UCL, which is where I first got the bug for this, was my PhD, which I started in around 2009. And this was investigating the links between cannabis and tobacco use and psychotic experiences and depression. It was using a group of teenagers based in uh, Bristol called the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children, otherwise known as Ausback, otherwise known as Children of the 90s. And you may well have heard of this because it's a huge, huge study and it's really, um, it's really fantastic. People, have, people use it to, um, to research all sorts of questions from, from childhood um, allergies to uh, cop death. So it, it's actually a pregnancy cohort. So in the early 1990s, about 14,000 pregnant women were recruited into the study and them and their children have been followed up ever since. So it was trying to be a representative sample of all of the uh, all of the pregnant women in what used to be called Avon and is now just Bristol and the surrounding areas. But so it's been going on for sort of 25 years and people use it to research all sorts of mental health, physical health, environmental, um, you name it really, any kind of public health epidemiology questions. But I, I was using data from the teenagers to look at, as I say, the links between these recreational drug use, cannabis and tobacco use and mental health. What I learned very quickly, um, as well as that epidemiology is A, amazing and B, really difficult, <laughs> is that the certainty I saw in the media that cannabis was causing a mental health crisis among young people just wasn't backed up by the research evidence. And now that's not to say that the evidence doesn't show a link. It's just that trying to establish causality, cause and effect is incredibly hard. 
So in public health, if we want to understand whether something causes something else, what we would ideally do is an RCT, a randomised controlled trial, where the exposure that we're interested in, say it's um, the effect of taking vitamin supplements, um, we would randomly, we would take a group of people, randomly assign half of them to receive this supplement and half of them not to, and then follow them up over time and see how many develop the outcome that we're interested in, which might be um, developing a cold or developing some sort of vitamin deficiency, for example, and how many people don't. And now you can see why this isn't possible where the exposure is something like drug use. Not only, obviously, because cannabis is illicit, so you wouldn't be able to take a group of teenagers and get randomly assign half of them to use cannabis and half of them not to for sort of legal and ethical reasons. But also you need to get people to adhere to the condition that you put them in. And you also want to look at the impact of using a substance over a long period of time. So even where we're interested in substances like alcohol and caffeine, you still it still be really really difficult to run a RCT investigating these things because you'd want you'd need people in the study for a really long time that makes it expensive in terms of both sort of time costs and money costs you need people to stay in the condition that you put them in which they may well not want to do and then with something like cannabis obviously you've got the illegality in it as well so we need to look at what people choose to do and rather than randomly assign them to conditions we just follow up and watch what people choose to do. But then this brings a whole new problem called confounding. The people who choose to use cannabis are different from the people who choose not to in lots of ways other than just their cannabis use. So it's really difficult um, not to be sure whether it's uh, the cannabis itself having the effect on the outcome or whether it's something else. So a good example of confounding is that if you do observational studies, you see a really strong link between ice cream sales and drowning or ice cream sales and skin cancer. And this isn't because ice cream is causing people to drown or causing people to develop skin cancer. I mean, it's pretty obvious what the, the big yellow confounder in the sky here is in this in this statement it's that people tend to eat more ice cream when the weather is nice so actually what we're seeing is an effect of the weather making people more likely to go in the sea and making people more likely to be out in the sun and run, run the risk of skin cancer so i'm going to show you some data now so this is a slide um this when I was doing my PhD, this paper by Theresa Moore and colleagues uh, was the definitive text looking at the link between cannabis use and psychosis. And what you can see here is a uh, it's called a forest plot. So the line down the middle, the vertical line down the middle is the null effect. If things are on this line, then this means there's not really any link between your exposure and your outcome. If they're to the left of the line, that's a reduced risk. And if they're to the right of the line, that's an increased risk. Each square represents a single study. So this is a meta-analysis. So it's taking all of the studies that have looked at the links between cannabis and psychosis and putting them together. And you can see the diamond at the bottom represents the overall effect when you combine all of these different studies. And what this seems to show is that the, re the relationship between cannabis and psychosis in observational studies is broadly consistent. But what Moore and colleagues also found is that studies that took into account more or measured more accurately these confounders, things like socioeconomic status, things like living in an urban environment, there's lots of different things that might influence the relationship between cannabis use and psychosis. 
The studies that took account of more of these or better quality of these showed weaker evidence of an association than the ones that adjusted for fewer. And this could mean that there's still more residual confounding affecting the association. So definitively saying that cannabis use causes psychosis from observational studies like this is really hard. Now, more recently, the field has moved on a little bit. I've done some work exploring the use of genetic information as a proxy for cannabis use. And I found some evidence or we found some evidence that suggests that perhaps the association could operate in both directions. So it's not just that cannabis use might increase the risk of psychosis, but also potentially that people with a predisposition to develop psychosis might then be more likely to use cannabis. So it's perfectly possible that these associations could operate in both directions, kind of a vicious cycle whereby poor mental health predicts a likelihood to use cannabis, maybe as a way of sort of coping with, with difficult, with, with struggling with your mental health. Um, but then the cannabis makes the mental health difficulties worse and so on. Um, other researchers have looked at different compounds within cannabis. So you've probably heard of THC and this is the most investigated cannabinoid within cannabis. And this is thought to be the one that, um, that is related to risk of psychosis and researchers that have, that have tried to tease out the strength of cannabis that are people that people are using have found that it seems to be particularly people who are every day using high THC cannabis seem to be particularly at risk of developing psychosis, whereas people who are using less frequently or people who are using less potent cannabis, they might not be at risk. And this is seen in quite a lot of these studies. The associations between cannabis and psychosis are really driven by high THC cannabis users or people who are using every single day, the sort of extreme end. And this is this might suggest that it's not just something about the biological effect of THC going on. So if you think about the difference between having a couple of pints of beer at the pub at the end of the evening versus waking up in the morning and having a pint of vodka for breakfast. Yes, if you're having a pint of vodka for breakfast, that probably biologically isn't doing you very much good. But that behaviour really suggests that something else is going on in your life, that you feel that, that that's appropriate. And maybe it's a marker for other problems that someone is having. And in the same way that very heavy, high potency cannabis use might be behaviorally quite interesting and, and potentially worrying in and of itself, regardless of the sort of biological impact of using that amount of cannabis. So it feels like a bit of a cop out, but I think there's still no conclusive answer. And I think this is partly because we have such a poor understanding of severe mental health problems like psychosis. We know that cannabis use is neither necessary nor sufficient for developing psychosis. Psychosis is very rare and cannabis use is quite common. So there's obviously something else going on as well, but that doesn't mean that cannabis use isn't one of a number of risk factors that might tip the scales for somebody. So we know that there is a genetic component to risk of psychosis. We also know that living in an urban environment is linked to an increased risk of psychosis, experiencing early childhood adversity and other factors. So cannabis use might just be one more of these factors. And because it's a factor that tends to happen 
just before the age at which people are likely to develop psychosis. It's sometimes seen as more of a smoking gun. Sorry, that is a, that is a dreadful pun. It's sometimes seen as more of a of a sort of direct cause than than perhaps it is. But that doesn't mean it's not a risk factor. Now, I've just mentioned THC. But that's only one cannabinoid of many hundreds that are found in the cannabis plant. And recently, another one has piqued the interest of researchers and had a bit of a media storm. And I'm sure you can guess where I'm going with this. Um, that the wrong way in my slides. Uh, that would be cannabidiol or CBD. Now, CBD has been touted to treat anxiety, chronic pain, cancer, arthritis, psychosis, problems with sleep, as well as being a sort of general improve your well-being product and being found in edible products from ice cream to hummus, um, for, in body lotions. Um, and even I, 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 I don't joke here that I saw last year a Christmas pudding, a CBD Christmas pudding advertised. But as well as that, it's also made headlines in the UK and Ireland as a potential treatment for a certain type of childhood epilepsy. And a really, really powerful public health campaign actually led to the law being changed. Although um, patients and their parents still report that it's very difficult to access medicinal cannabis in the UK, even after the, the law was changed. But what does the evidence say? At the moment, it's pretty thin on the ground. Um, the evidence around the links between CBD and childhood epilepsy is probably the strongest. But one study investigating it found that when um, children with this particular type of epilepsy led to a halving in seizure frequency in only about 12.5% of children in the trial, suggesting that the vast majority of these children didn't see a benefit from consuming CBD. Now, still, given that... These children are dealing with a debilitating and often life-limiting condition. It certainly seems worth pursuing this, but at the moment the research evidence is far from conclusive. And what about CBD as a treatment for psychosis? So there are some small-scale studies that look promising using CBD again as an adjunct to patients' usual treatment. One study with 88 patients uh, with psychosis who were given CBD and their usual treatment. Um, this showed a reduction in both self-reported and clinician-reported symptoms over a six-week study. And this was where clinicians were blind as to whether the participant had received CBD or not. And CBD isn't thought to be psychoactive. So you can't, it's not like if you take a psychoactive substance where you can tell that you're intoxicated, CBD doesn't seem to have much of an intoxication effect, if any. So it, you can sort of run these blinded studies using CBD. So it's an intriguing finding, but 88 participants is obviously very, very small scale. Now, should, does this mean we should all start self-medicating with over-the-counter CBD? I would argue, um, this was not going to surprise you, I would argue probably not. Um, the devil is in the dosage detail with these particular, with these particular um, compounds with CBD. So in these studies, um, the dosage of CBD that's usually given is around 1,000 milligrams or, or something of that order of magnitude. And what you can buy in health food stores is nowhere near that. And also... Um, 
sort of chemists have taken samples from the stuff that's available over the counter and found that it's hugely variable as to whether it actually matches what it says on the on the back of the bottle or or whatever it is um some seem to have way more cbd than they say they do some seem to have way less it's not necessarily consistent even within the same product and quite worryingly some seem to have quite a lot more thc than they're really meant to um legally certainly so um yeah, some of these products are um, inconsistent, let's put it like that. Um, and as such, it's unlikely that you'll get much more than a placebo effect from CBD supplements at present. So let's talk about a different substance now. And that's uh, a substance that certainly was making headlines when I was a teenager. And that's MDMA or ecstasy. So when I was growing up in the 90s, it was often in the headlines. Um, I remember when The Shaman released Ebenezer Good and uh, <laughs> a song that not very subtly extols the, the joys of E. Um, but I also re really vividly remember the death of a teenage girl called Leah Betts, who um, died after taking MDMA. So, so what is MDMA? It's a synthetic substance, um, as I mentioned earlier on. Initially, it was discovered and patented back in, I think, 1912 it was. So you might think of it as a sort of 90s drug, but actually it's been around for quite a while. Um, although its psychoactive properties weren't noticed then, it was developed as an intermediate product during the synthesis of a blood clotting medication. So it was sort of discovered and patented, but it wasn't well, it wasn't investigated until quite a bit later. Its popularity first grew in the 1970s, uh, particularly in California, where psychonaut and researcher Alexander Shulgin synthesised it and explored its uses, as he believed it might have therapeutic potential. Um, it eventually made its way from California over to Europe, and in the 80s and 90s rave scenes, particularly where it gained fame or infamy. And um, it's still making headlines now. And perhaps this is because there is growing evidence that the MDMA available sort of on the, on the street. I mean, people don't really buy drugs on the street anymore. They tend to buy them on the Internet. But uh, I'm old fashioned. <laughs> but the, the drugs that are available for, for in sort of the drug market seem to be getting more potent. So this is a slide taken from the EMCDDA, which is the European Centre for um, monitoring of drugs and drug abuse, I think. I think that's what the A stands for. Um, and this is taken, this is data taken from the Netherlands, and it's the um, strength of MDMA tablets in the Netherlands from 2003 to 2015. And the different colours represent different potencies of MDMA. And you can see from this graph that the strongest tablets, so that's the dark blue, those with over 140 milligrams of MDMA, went from around 5% of the sample in 2003 to over half of the sample that was, these were samples that were seized by the police, I think, um, in 2015. And the evidence is broadly similar from the UK, although we don't have such well-reported data or systematic research to draw upon. Um, there are reports from organisations like The Loop. So The Loop is... Um, a charity that go to music festivals and other locations and provide drug testing. So rather than testing you to see whether you're on a drug, they test your or one's drugs to um, tell you what is the content. So they do drug testing, but also counselling. So if you take a sample to be analysed by them, then you also have to 
have a counselling session where they'll talk to you about harm reduction, risks from taking these substances. So there's some sort of education as well as just this drug testing service. And they use Twitter very effectively to talk about the drugs that are in circulation at music festivals or city centres where they're reporting from. And from following them on Twitter, I can see that they regularly report very high potency MDMA tablets in circulation at festivals. And this means that they can then offer real-time harm reduction advice sort of split pills in half or even into a quarter where the where the strength is particularly high because mdma overdose is extremely dangerous it can lead to hypothermia so that's the opposite of hypothermia where your body heats up uncontrollably um seizures and in rare cases um fatality as well the office for national statistics report that between 25 and 50 people predominantly young adults die every year after taking mdma now these deaths are ones where MDMA is mentioned on the death certificate and I already mentioned Leah Betts and Leah Betts did die after taking MDMA and and very likely if she hadn't taken MDMA she wouldn't have died but it wasn't specifically the MDMA that killed her it was very very unfortunate and to do with to do with a, a harm reduction message that had been misinterpreted at the time when Leah Betts took MDMA. It was far. It was very commonly being taken in raves where people were getting incredibly hot. This hyperthermia. They were overheating. They were sweating, and they were. Um, so the public health advice was: if you're taking MDMA, you need to drink lots of water. You need to keep your fluids up because otherwise you can suffer from dehydration. You can you can become very sick from doing so. But that this part of the message was somewhat lost and Leah wasn't in a rave. She was she was at a house party and she just knew that, oh, if I'm taking MDMA, I have to drink lots of water. And she ended up drinking so much water that actually she suffered um, toxicity from the water. And MDMA can also impact on how you absorb water so it, you can you can retain you can suffer from water retention. So if you do drink a lot of water, then you, the MDMA can exacerbate that problem. But this was this is a sort of example of a harm reduction message that can actually have misleading effects. But there are also researchers exploring um, MDMA's use in a therapeutic setting. And perhaps the most established of these is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, as they're also known, who are based in the USA. And they're exploring the use of MDMA as part of a talking therapy for individuals who've experienced um, things like sexual assault, war, violent crime or other trauma. So trauma and in particular post-traumatic stress disorder can be incredibly hard to treat because discussing the very traumatic event or rather discussing the traumatic event itself even during a therapy session, can actually trigger a trauma response, which means that sort of talking about it and moving beyond the trauma to a place where you can um, sort of not even rationalise what happened, but a place where you can kind of move beyond the trauma is incredibly difficult in a therapy session, which can lead to more avoidance, which can lead to more um, sort of unwanted um, flashbacks and intrusive thoughts and that kind of thing. So why might MDMA be useful to help talking about trauma? Well, there are experiments that are exploring the use of it to enable people to confront their memories because some of the sort of some of the ways that MDMA, some of the intoxication effects that MDMA has are things like increasing interpersonal trust, um, making someone feel safe, connected and motivated. So 
it isn't hard to see why this might be quite useful to improve the relationship between patient and therapist and potentially put um, a patient or participant rather in into a state where they feel safe enough to be able to start to kind of confront some of these memories with a therapist who they feel particularly kind of connected to and open with and safe around. And this isn't a new idea. Um, I mentioned Alexander Shulgin and he was um, using or he was advising his therapist friends to use um, MDMA in the 1970s in California in marriage counselling. So these kind of ideas are sort of coming back around again as, well, can these substances that we think of as having particularly sort of negative and dangerous effects might also be potentially be able to be harnessed for for useful effects as well. And there's another psychoactive substance that's being explored as a treatment for depression, and that's psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms. So this striking image here um, shows the functional connectivity of the brain in two different states. So this is this is sort of the combined picture of 15 different participants and this is so this is their brains the connectivity patterns within their brains in two different states one of them is after the study sample had been given a placebo this is the one on the left and you can see here that the brain connections are quite modular so there are hubs of connectivity and there's not a great deal of crosstalk between those different hubs but there tends to be lots of talk within the hubs not so much between The other image shows the same participants uh, while intoxicated on psilocybin, which is the the active compound in magic mushrooms, as I said. And though it might not look like it, there are exactly the same number of connections in these two images. But when these 15 participants have been administered psilocybin, the connections are much more global and much less structured. Very pretty, but what does it mean? Um, The researchers who conducted this study also found that the blood flow in in certain hub areas in the brain was also lower during psilocybin compared to placebo, which, as there are sort of fewer messages being sent between the two, kind of makes sense. But what they noticed was that these areas of low blood flow, and they were in areas like the prefrontal cortex, kind of the area right at the front of the brain that's involved in lots of things like executive function and cognition, um, these are also the same areas or some of the same areas that other researchers have found to have higher blood flow in people with depression. So this led people to think, well, well, could magic mushrooms be used to treat depression? It's a question that researchers in the UK and the USA are exploring, um, as well as whether psilocybin might be useful as treatment for cluster headaches and even to treat addiction. And this might sound a bit counterintuitive, um, using one illicit substance to reduce or prevent dependence to another. But there is growing evidence for it around psilocybin, but also for ketamine, um, where there are experiments ongoing to explore whether ketamine can be useful to treat alcohol dependence, for example. But how on earth do you design a study to investigate the impact of a psychedelic? Because that's what we want in, in medicine and research. We want good quality evidence to assess well does this actually work because it's all well and good having sort of anecdotes of people saying yes I feel better afterwards but but what we want to understand is is sort of design really rigorous and well-conducted studies to explore this 
So I should make clear, and I, this was the same for these MDMA studies, that it isn't just a case of saying drop mushrooms feel better. And even the, the strongest advocate of psilocybin as a treatment for depression is not saying that. So with this and the MDMA studies mentioned before, the substance is administered as part of a talking therapy regimen. So a relationship between the therapist and participant is built up long before a substance is ever given. There's often many sessions before a substance will ever be taken. So the substance is part of the treatment, but there's a lot of psychological therapy going on alongside it as well. So if you want to design a well-conducted, rigorous study using psilocybin, how do you go about doing it? Um, the first thing that's really, really difficult is what on earth do you compare it with? How do you choose a placebo for this study? So I, I don't know whether any of you have ever taken a psychedelic substance or been around somebody when they are having a psychedelic experience, but I'm sure you can imagine that it's pretty it's pretty easy to notice when someone is on a psychedelic. Um, so if you want to conduct a, a either single blind where the participant doesn't know or a double blind where the participant and the researcher don't know what condition a person is in, that's really challenging. So what some people do is use what's called an active placebo, which might mean giving someone a different psychoactive substance. So they'll feel some sort of physiological response, not necessarily the same response that they'd get from psilocybin. But if they're not experienced with psilocybin, then they might not know. So that might be one way or give them a lower dose of a psychedelic. So they still get the kind of psychedelic response, but not to the level that you think is the sort of therapeutic dose. So this is called an active control or an active placebo. And this is quite commonly used in these studies. But even so, a trained session moderator um, can usually identify the condition accurately, the condition a participant is in, whether they're in the control or the, or the whether, sorry, they're in the placebo or the experimental arm, usually about 77 to 95, 90, pardon me, 95% of the time. So that's not great in terms of if you want to blind the study. And also, some researchers who are exploring this, um, there, there's disagreement about how the psychedelic experience should happen. So some researchers give people the, the psilocybin and then have the talking therapy while a person's intoxicated, whereas others will give them the psilocybin and then have the session afterwards. And um, for my podcast, I interviewed um, a researcher who does um these studies looking at psilocybin, uh, Dr. Albert Garcia Romero from Johns Hopkins University in the US. And he told me in their lab, they think of it as like watching a movie. You wouldn't talk through the movie. You'd talk about it afterwards. So they give the, give the participants the psilocybin, let them have their psychedelic experience and then talk about it afterwards. And so far, the studies that are looking at this are small scale, because as you as I've sort of described, it's quite an an intensive procedure to do these studies and also it's sort of expensive it's it's um large scale and it's hard it's really difficult to run these studies so the studies are small scale but promising but it is worth pointing out that it's hard enough to get talking therapies anyway and so the chances of psychedelic therapy being available on the nhs anytime soon sadly i think is probably a bit of a long way off so I'm going to talk about well one more or kind of two more substances before before I stop, um, and that's uh, cigarettes or nicotine, I suppose, because both of these. So I'm going to talk about cigarettes and e-cigarettes, basically. So you might think tobacco is quite an odd 
thing to talk about in a talk all about new new research. Um, but there's a surprising amount about tobacco cigarettes that we don't know. So we all know that tobacco is bad for us, right? But actually, while burning a tobacco leaf and inhaling the smoke is definitely not great for us in any context, there's something specifically deadly about smoking cigarettes. Uh, for most other tobacco products like cigars, chewing tobacco, the nicotine, which is the psychoactive substance in tobacco, is absorbed through the lining of your mouth. Well, whereas with tobacco cigarettes, this isn't possible. Um, the pH of tobacco cigarettes means that buccal absorption, absorption through, through the mouth and through the gums can't occur. The smoke must be drawn down into the lungs where the nicotine gets into the bloodstream within seconds. So this is problematic for two reasons. Uh, firstly, the increased risk of lung cancer and respiratory problems that we know are linked to cigarette smoking, as well as things like the oral cancers that are linked to tobacco use of any kind. But also that because you're drawing the smoke into your lungs, your lungs are very, very good at getting whatever's in them into the bloodstream and into the brain really quickly. So that means the nicotine gets into your bloodstream and into your brain really, really fast within seconds. And that means they're particularly risky in terms of developing dependence or addiction. We know that one of the key factors that influences whether a substance has addictive properties or not is how quickly it has an effect on the brain. So method of consumption is really key. As a rule of thumb, if you swallow a substance or if it gets absorbed through your mouth or through your stomach, that's a pretty, pretty slow method of getting into the brain. Um, but substances that are snorted or inhaled into the lungs, like nicotine is here, they have a much quicker effect, so the increased risk of dependence. And then injection is similarly, if not more, quick still. And it's one of the reasons why if you start smoking regularly, it can be really, really difficult to quit. So far, so obvious. We've known about the risks of smoking since the 50s. But I'm really interested in... Um, in what we don't know about smoking. So why, why, for example, can some people smoke for years and then give up really easily while others really struggle? But I'm particularly interested in the links between smoking and mental health. So we see smoking at higher prevalences, higher rates in populations with poor mental health. And this is particularly pronounced for severe mental health problems like psychosis. It's something that sometimes gets overlooked in the discussion around cannabis and psychosis that I mentioned earlier as well. Smoking is seen at far higher prevalence than cannabis use. And often individuals who are using cannabis mix it with tobacco when they smoke it, certainly in the UK and in lots of other places. But and also, if you're a cannabis user, you're also more likely to be a cigarette smoker as well. So while smoking rates have been going down for decades in the general population in the UK and in other countries with strong tobacco control policies, the drop's been far less pronounced in populations with serious mental health problems. And historically, it was assumed that nicotine might help with some of the cognitive deficits sometimes seen in people with schizophrenia or um, with the side effects of some antipsychotic medication, which can be really, really unpleasant. But actually, when this was looked into in a bit more detail, the evidence for these hypotheses isn't actually that great. And some people even argued that a patient with severe mental health problems has enough going on without taking away their cigarettes, let them have their pleasure. And that is a fine argument if it were true. But actually, disorders like schizophrenia are linked to lowering of life expectancy on average. And, and this is often due to diseases that are linked to smoking. But also, even more importantly, when you ask people with psychosis and people with severe mental health problems, they want to quit smoking 
at exactly the same rates as the, as people in the general population. So this this sort of oh don't take away their cigarettes argument is kind of not very accurate because there are just as many people with severe mental health problems who want to quit but at the moment the support is not there like, there's no tailored support specifically for people with severe mental health who might need specific help to quit um so this is something that re- research is ongoing to explore smoking cessation interventions particularly targeted at these populations and also whether there are ways to introduce harm reduction methods so people could still consume nicotine but in a way that's less detrimental to their health um, than than tobacco cigarettes which brings us very nicely onto e-cigarettes as I mentioned and I'm really really fascinated by e-cigarettes and in particular because they've really caused a divide in the research community um, now, the first e-cigarette was uh, developed in, or invented in 2003 by a Chinese pharmacist called Honglik because he wanted to help him and his dad quit smoking, I believe. Um, and since then, there have been a few different generations of e-cigarettes, which have each got better at delivering nicotine and also allowing for more user modifications, sort of starting off with just being able to refill e-liquid, the diff- different flavours of e-liquid, and then more recently, modular devices which allow people to to set their own settings for how how hot they want their vapor to get and all of these kind of things it gives the user much more control and it's actually improved their ability to deliver nicotine which to begin with was was very very poor compared to certainly compared to tobacco cigarettes so why are e-cigarettes controversial and it is in part it's because we know surprisingly little about the health risks of nicotine itself which i'll come on to in a moment But also e-cigarettes have really captured the kind of imagination, I guess, of headline writers. And um, some of the some of the headlines that they've made have been a little bit unfair. So we know what it is about tobacco cigarettes that are particularly risky to health. We know it's the tar in tobacco cigarettes, the carbon monoxide, the formaldehyde, the heavy metals and hundreds of carcinogens. And we can look and see whether any of these things are present in e-cigarette vapour, in either e-cigarette liquid or in the the exhaled vapour from e-cigarettes. And because e-cigarettes, you'd think I'd be able to say that by now, e-cigarettes don't contain tobacco itself. Or... um, so a lot of these things, like the tar, for example, just aren't present at all in in e-cigarette vapour. Or some of the things that are present things like formaldehyde um, can be present, but at orders of magnitude lower than you find in tobacco cigarettes. And this doesn't mean that e-cigarettes are safe or harmless, because there might be other aspects of inhaling a heated vapour that are risky that we don't know about. So, for example, um, because it's a vapour rather than smoke, it's a much more sort of moist um, environment in your e-cigarette and your e-cigarette is something that you reuse rather than a tobacco cigarette where you smoke the cigarette and then it's gone so this might mean that um, the mouthpiece could harbour bacteria because you're reusing it and you, I don't know how often people clean their e-cigarettes but um, if you are an e-cigarette user maybe that's something to think about um, now as I mentioned e-cigarette liquid doesn't contain tobacco it does contain uh, propylene glycol, which is sometimes known as E1520, which is an additive used in food preparation, um, or glycerin, which is a byproduct of soap manufacture made from either animal or vegetable fat. 
But e-cigarette liquid can also contain different flavourings, and some of these have been quite controversial. So perhaps you've heard of a condition called popcorn lung. Um, it was so named because the initial outbreak of this condition was seen in a popcorn factory. Um, its official sort of medical title is bronchiolitis obliterans. Um, and some e-cigarette liquids contain a buttery food flavouring called diacetyl. Um, and there are there have been many headlines about e-cigarettes claiming that this diacetyl, which is linked to popcorn lung, is sort of plaguing e-cigarette users and vapors are, are at risk of this awful bronchiolitis obliterans. So diacetyl is a chemical that's been um, tested and approved as safe to eat, although the test that tested whether it was safe to eat didn't test whether it was safe to inhale it. Um, and because it's a buttery flavour, you can see why it might have been present in a popcorn factory. So the initial paper that found the link between diacetyl and this bronchiolitis obliterans in a popcorn factory actually was pretty inconclusive itself. I went back and, and found it and read it. Um, and to date, there hasn't been a single reported case of popcorn lung related to e-cigarette use. Not only that, but diacetyl is also found and at higher levels in tobacco cigarettes than it is in e-cigarettes. Yet we don't hear about the risk of popcorn lung from tobacco cigarettes. And even so, since 2016, the UK has required that no e-cigarette liquids contain diacetyl anyway. So if you are a vapor, I would suggest that you don't need to worry about popcorn lung. Now, more seriously, last year in the USA, there were a small but alarming spate of serious illnesses and deaths that were initially linked to e-cigarette use. They became known as EVALI, uh, so e-cigarette or vaping associated lung injury, catchy. Um, as of December 2019, there were 54 deaths and a couple of thousand cases that had been reported in the US. So it became apparent, though, that um, while e-cigarettes were involved, the particular culprit that was associated with these illnesses and these deaths was a compound called vitamin E acetate. And what seems to have been happening is that e the individuals were using unregulated e-cigarette liquids, potentially that they'd created themselves, and often, in fact, usually containing cannabis products, so THC. So vitamin E acetate is quite often found in sort of moisturisers and body creams and things like that. So potentially what was happening is people were taking sort of cannabis body creams. Yeah, that's a thing in the USA and making e-liquids e out of them to get to, to consume the cannabis, the THC. Um, so the outbreak of illnesses and deaths was obviously extremely worrying and um and not a situation that anybody wants. But it led to a number of countries calling for e-cigarettes to be banned. Now, to me, I think this is akin to somebody going blind after drinking bathtub moonshine and suggesting this means we should ban gin and tonics. So we have regulation of products exactly to protect us, the consumer, from harms like this. So this is why we have regulations and, and regulated e-cigarette products have not been linked to any deaths or illnesses in this way. So what about nicotine itself? I mentioned that we don't know that much about the risks from nicotine. Just because the tobacco element of cigarettes is so harmful, this doesn't automatically imply that nicotine is completely benign. And there is some evidence from animal studies that nicotine might increase the risk of tumours and also that nicotine might be risky to a developing fetus during pregnancy. But at the moment, there's no evidence from humans to, corro to, to corroborate this. And the risks, so the risks of nicotine itself 
in and of itself separated from the risks from tobacco cigarettes is much less clear. Now, e-cigarettes are not safe. Very little is safe, completely safe. We take risks every single day in all sorts of aspects of our life, of our lives. And if we don't, if you don't smoke, it would be incredibly stupid to start using an e-cigarette. But for the many thousands or more of individuals who currently smoke and have struggled to quit, then the e-cigarettes could represent a way to reduce harm. And so far, the research evidence does seem to suggest that they can be an effective smoking cessation tool for many people. Um, I'm really nearly finished, but I just want to quickly talk about drug use in the real world, which is, I mean, it's kind of what I've been doing. But throughout this talk and, and in the book that I wrote as well and in the podcast, I'm always talking about the effects of a particular substance at a particular dose on on not even on an individual, but generally at a population level, because there is obviously individual differences when you're using a substance. But where substances are illicit, sometimes it's really difficult to know what it is that you're taking. If you buy a white powder or a chalky tablet, whether it's from a friend of a friend or a stranger at a festival over the internet, you don't really know what you're buying. I mean, it sounds a bit flippant, but you're kind of buying a lottery ticket. There aren't consumer rights for illicit drugs. Pharmaceutical substances have to be created under strict conditions in sterile settings by qualified individuals. Now, illicit drugs, uh, either even if they're whether they're sort of synthesised or even if they're just kind of packaged, they'll of, they'll still often be done in kind of underground labs. It's not subject to any of these restrictions. They might be made in really unhygienic conditions. They might be made in bulk. They might be made by amateurs, people who don't have training, don't necessarily know what they're doing. So you need to ask yourself a few questions if you're going to take an illicit substance, and you might not be able to know the answers to it. Is it the substance that you think it is? One white powder or pill looks very much like another, and sometimes this can have devastating consequences. So in the early 2010s, us MDMA was, for some for various reasons, there wasn't very much MDMA around in the UK. And so other substances started being sold as MDMA. And one of these is a substance called PMA. Now, PMA is particularly dangerous to people who are regular or sort of experienced MDMA users because it has a pro couple of properties that make it really risky. The first is that there's a longer lag between taking it and feeling an effect for PMA than there is for MDMA. But also it has a smaller what's called window of efficacy. So this means there's less headroom if you take too much before you experience toxicity. And what would happen is that people who were used to taking MDMA would take PMA, they'd wait the length of time that they usually have to wait before experiencing an effect and they wouldn't experience the expected effect of MDMA, they'd go, oh, I've, it's probably really weak and take another one. And this would then push them into PMA toxicity. And there were a number of a number of deaths due to PMA in the early 2010s, precisely because people were trying to be sensible. But unfortunately, because they didn't know what they were taking, they were putting themselves at much higher risk. And there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that drugs are very often missold. So the Drug Policy Alliance collect data of samples submitted to online drug testing companies. So this is like the loop, companies that will 
if you send them a sample of your of your substance there's one called Wedinos that's based in Wales for example they'll they'll test your drug and tell you what's in it and what's not in it and um, they found that of 250 samples submitted believing them to be MDMA 124 of them didn't actually contain MDMA uh, many contained synthetic cathinones, so I don't know whether you remember methadrone or meow meow as the press and nobody else called it. Um, some contained amphetamine, so that's speed. Some contained cocaine. Some contained caffeine. Um, a few contained ketamine or um, dextromethorphan. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a it's a compound found in cough medicines, but a surprisingly large amount of MDMA tablets didn't actually contain MDMA at all. There's been examples of heroin seized laced with fentanyl, which is a substantially more potent opioid and made a lot of headlines recently. Benzodiazepines like Xanax um, have been seized that were actually fentanyl. And these can be particularly misleading because often they're kind of these look like pharmaceutical pills, the Xanax tablets. But just because they look like a pharmaceutical pill doesn't mean they were made in a pharmaceutical environment. And some of these, even if they look like they were, may well not have been. And then sort of already covered this, but is it the dose that you think it is? So even with alcohol, where we know the dose, we all know how easy it is to misjudge how much we're drinking and drink more than we intend to. Um, And that's with a substance that's regulated. It says on the side of the bottle how much alcohol is in is in the bottle that you're drinking from. And yet still, I mean, I'm not just speaking from personal experience here about being able to uh, about misjudging how much alcohol you drink um i'm sure we i'm sure many people listening can relate um but this is really amplified where drugs are illicit and there's no regulation there's no sort of handy guide you, you don't get on your packet of powder or your packet of pills sort of one dose equals whatever how many of your five a day no that's not right um so there's evidence that MDMA and cocaine are increasing in potency. I sort of mentioned this earlier with MDMA, um, but an- analyses of seized samples really does suggest that there's potency increasing. And drug use seems to be getting more risky, certainly in the UK. So while I was finishing writing the book last summer, the Office for National Statistics published their um, drug poisoning death data from the previous year. So this is deaths from drug poisoning that were reported in 2018. And they were at their highest since records began in 1993. And in particular, there'd been increases in cocaine, opioid, amphetamine and benzodiazepine deaths over that year. So what can be done? The UK research community was quite vocal after these findings were published. And they called for harm reduction strategies to be prioritised and for funding that has been cut a lot recently to be restored to support services. And it's also important to consider who is particularly at risk of death from substance overdose. And it's people who are who are vulnerable. It's people with complex needs. And a huge problem here is stigma. Most people who use substances don't have a problem with them. But those who do are really often stigmatised, which can lead them to be less likely to seek support and also less likely to get the support that they need when they do try and seek it. So a survey in Scotland on public attitudes to people with drug dependence found that 42% of those surveyed believed that drug dependence was due to a lack of self-discipline and willpower. This is still a sort of pervasive um, problem that seems to exist. In the USA, a survey asked people to select words or phrases to describe someone who uses cocaine, and the most commonly selected were no future, lazy and self-centred. There's this real kind of 
hypocrisy around substance use where people seem to not think that alcohol is a substance use and see there's a real othering of people who use illicit substances. And there's research showing that the language that we use to talk about substance use and addiction has real world consequences on how people are viewed and treated. Mental health clinicians were given two vignettes in one study describing someone, one using neutral language, so things like problem drug users or suffering from drug drug dependence disorder or drug use disorder, compared to one using the more pejorative terms like addicts. And pejorative language was associated with an increased belief that an individual was responsible for their situation and also more punitive measures towards that individual were endorsed. And this was among mental health clinicians. So what can we do? I really believe that better education and understanding about substance use and the people who use substances, which is after all most if not all of us, about how and why people can develop problematic substance use or unhealthy relationships with substances will increase empathy and reduce stigma. So understanding, for example, as I've just said, that alcohol is a psychoactive substance might go some way to removing this kind of othering of drug use. And a better understanding might improve public perceptions of harm reduction measures, so things like drug testing facilities, unsupervised injection sites that provide sterile equipment and clean environment to, to inject drugs. So I've actually just published a paper looking at public attitudes towards these drug consumption rooms in Scotland. Uh, we presented different messages to a representative sample of the Scottish population. So they contained information about drug consumption rooms, refutation of common arguments against them, personal stories and summaries of evidence of efficacy of these consumption rooms in terms of reducing risk. And in particular, we found that actually there was there was over, overall a support for these drug consumption rooms among the Scottish population. And in particular, when the participants were presented with the refutation of opposing arguments in conjunction with scientific evidence or with a sympathetic personal story, support went up even further. And you might have seen in the news over the last week that a man named Peter Crichton, Crichant, I think is how you pronounce his name. But he's taken matters into his own hands in Glasgow and he's actually bought a van and is driving around Glasgow offering a safe, um, offering sterile equipment and a safe place for individuals to um, use their drugs. So basically a mobile drug consumption room. There's a bit of an argument about, about whether he's operating within the law or not, but um, more power to him. Um, he was also carrying naloxone, which is a substance that... Um, can uh, can bring and bring someone who's overdosing on heroin out of overdose um, by blocking the receptors that heroin binds to. So it brings a person out straight into withdrawal, which can be very unpleasant, but obviously less unpleasant than being dead. Um, so I've received training in administering naloxone. It took about 15 minutes and it potentially could save someone's life. And I think there's some squeamishness around naloxone. But it's akin to an EpiPen, really, certainly in terms of administering it. And I think, again, it's stigma that leads to this squeamishness. The people most at risk of overdose are the people who are most vulnerable, those with other difficulties and challenges in their life. And such people need our support and compassion, not our judgment and condemnation. And I will leave it there. Sorry, that was a bit longer than I thought it was. Um, so I'm sure you're all desperate for a little break. But thank you so much for listening. And I can't wait to get your questions afterwards. Hello everybody and welcome back. 
Uh, we're into the Q&A sessions here now. Um, so as per usual, you can still make a donation. The mods will put the link into the uh, chat. Um, and we'll start with the Q&A. So the first question is from William. Has there been any investigation of effects of, on, of cannabis on dementia, palliative or causative? Um, asking for a much older friend. Yes, yeah, so I didn't know this. So I have done a quick bit of a investigative Googling during the break. And um, in fact, I would recommend going to um, the Alzheimer's Society website where they've got a sort of Q&A page about this kind of thing. And they talk about um, there is there's a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence around cannabis um, or CBD oil as a treatment for dementia. But it's another one of those situations where at the moment we just don't have very strong evidence. So there is some some evidence that it might be helpful with a few of the sort of behavioural symptoms of dementia. So agitation and aggression, you can kind of see that the intoxication effects of cannabis might be useful to prevent or minimise those kind of conditions. But um, there really isn't uh, very good quality evidence at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'd suggest going and having a look at their page if you want a bit more information about that, because ultimately I'd just be reading it to you. So you could probably read it for yourself because it's a little bit outside my area of expertise. But yeah. Um, Anonymous asks, um, anecdotally, uh, smoking rates seem higher among the poor. Is this true? And if so, why did the middle class give up smoking sooner and more successfully? Yeah, and it's becoming more pronounced, which you'd think as sort of tobacco control measures are doing things like pushing up the price of cigarettes, um, yet it's still people in lower lower SES and more deprived areas who are now more likely to be smoking. So actually, you'd think that reducing smoking would reduce inequality, but in a way it's actually widening health inequality. Or there's some evidence for that. The evidence isn't completely consistent. But I'd say it's easier for people with more resources to to give up smoking you've got better support networks you're better able to manage some of the symptoms of withdrawal and things like that if um if there's difficult difficult things going on in your life it's one other thing to manage a sort of withdrawal symptoms of giving up smoking is just potentially one thing too many so people with with more resources are more able to to give up so i think that's why some of the sort of offering um smoking cessation help from your GP and things like that I think it's not necessarily that surprising that the people with more kind of resources available to them both in terms of support and and financial resources and, and all sorts of things are more able to take up this help when it's offered than people who've also got lots of other things challenging things going on in their lives. And the price of some of the smoking giving up products that you find in supermarkets are through the roof is it is almost like, well, why would I bother when I can just buy a pack of packs? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it is, it's really challenging. And there are obviously, and, and also smoking cessation support has been slashed. That is a good tongue twister. <laughs> smoking cessation support has been slashed recently. Like all, lots and lots of organisations that I've done work with in the past are finding that their budgets have been cut or completely stopped. And so lots of local stop smoking support has vanished over the past year or two which is a real real problem as well um on to a question from trevor smith um what are your thoughts on legalizing hard drugs like heroin good thing or dangerous 
Now, there's a few questions about legalization, um, um, and I think I think we need to kind of get away from this idea of, of hard drugs for a start. As sort of, there's not really the distinction isn't really so great. So, some drugs are more risky than others, but quite a lot of that risk is increased by the fact that the substance is illicit and is unregulated, and. I'm going to slightly dodge the heroin question because it's it's easier to understand the point I'm going to make if we talk about cannabis rather than heroin. So remind me to come back to heroin at the end. But if we look at what legalisation of cannabis has meant in lots of different countries around the world, it's really, really different. So there are lots of different ways that you can do it. So some countries have just gone for decriminalising. That's what Portugal has done, which ultimately... There's no re- real regulation or regulatory rules that you have to abide by. It's just that people are, it's treated as a health problem rather than a criminal problem. So if people are having substance use problems, they are given health support rather than a criminal record. And um, what they found actually is that Portugal had a really big problem with heroin before um before 2001 when this was introduced and that problem has really diminished. I mean, it's weird when you go to Lisbon and people are selling you drugs on every street corner or or offering you drugs, I should say. I wasn't buying them. Um, but people were offering drugs on every street corner. So it's 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 strange. But it, it does seem to have worked there. And substance use, certainly harmful substance use, has gone down. And then I mentioned cannabis because cannabis is something that's differentially legalised in different places around the world. And you compare a country like Uruguay, where cannabis has been regulated in a very sort of medical model. Um, there's a cap on how potent how high a THC level you can have in the cannabis that's sold. You have to buy it through pharmacies. Whereas in the USA, it's gone for very much a sort of consumer culture. Um, there's no limit on how strong the cannabis can be. All sorts of different products are available. You can get them in all sorts of shops. And what we found is that in the US, there's, people are really, really still going for the very, very high THC products and potentially putting themselves at more risk. Um, also, lots of Lots of the products are kind of edibles and very, very sort of shiny wrappers and cartoon characters advertising them and that kind of thing, you know. And as you might expect, kids are picking up cookies and eating them and having to go to the emergency room. So what policymakers who are thinking about legalisation, or I kind of prefer regulation than legalisation. I don't think we should just blanket legalise all substances like alcohol is regulated, tobacco is regulated in the UK. Um, I mean, caffeine is not regulated. Uh, so there are differences. But if we're thinking about regulation, you if you're trying to regulate a product and remove it from the illicit market, you need to find the sort of sweet spot between reducing harm but also a product that people actually want to use. Because if you put the cap on how much THC can be in a product too low, then people will just carry on going to the illicit market. So it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult um, balance to weigh up. Um, And in terms of whether this should happen to all substances, there are so many risks from heroin being illicit. And it's those risks that are putting people at more danger than the substance itself. I I do believe that the evidence shows that things like having to use in unhygienic environments with unhygienic equipment um, and and without the availability of a potentially life saving something like naloxone to hand um, having being forced to do it away from 
like loved ones or potentially anyone um these are the things that put people at risk of overdose and i don't think that heroin should be available in every like in in every sort of um convenience store in the way that alcohol is absolutely not i think it should be very seriously regulated if 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 this was the route that that went down but there are a lot of harms that could be reduced by being able to use heroin in a in a more sort of hygienic and safer environment. Yeah, anecdotally, from when I was at school, one of my friends, his parents let him smoke weed in the house, and basically they'd let him do whatever drugs he wanted to in the house, on the argument that, well, if he's going to do them, I'd rather he does them here, where I am, where I can keep him safe, where I can look after him and I can call for help if he needs it, rather than going to some dodgy place where we don't know where he is. Uh, anonymous asks, um, is there any link? Oh, sorry, wrong one. Sorry, buddy. No, sorry. Anonymous asks, is there any link between heavy use of ecstasy when young, leading to chronic or lifelong depression? So this, this is a tricky one. Um, there's certain, There's not good evidence but partly that's because there's not really good evidence for any of these kind of epidemiological studies where it's just really really hard to do this research and look at anything conclusively a heavy use of mdma is certainly associated with an increased risk of depression heavy use of almost any psychoactive substance is linked to almost any mental health problem and that that's true for alcohol it's true for tobacco and it's true for lots of other illicit substances but understanding what that actually means is really difficult because also very few people use mdma but don't use any other psychoactive substance so if you're trying to look at just the effect of mdma that's really difficult because it, there's also alcohol use going on there's also tobacco use going on generally at a population level that's kind of when we talk about that epidemiology we're kind of talking about patterns in population level so polydrug use makes it really difficult to tease these apart and also what direction is causality maybe people with the sort of propensity to low mood might be drawn to a substance that makes you feel really happy and um, but then there is also a sort of there's a plausible biological mechanism by which heavy use of MDMA could lead to depression because MDMA impacts on your serotonin, which is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain that is linked to mood. And so obviously if you take a substance, this might boost your serotonin for a while, but then you drop below where you were before, before you come back up again. So if you do that regularly enough, you do develop tolerance to these things. It changes the sort of how your, how your receptors function and, and that sort of thing. So there is a sort of plausible biological mechanism by which heavy use of MDMA could be linked to depression. And I mean, it's kind of true with a lot of these substances that heavy use of a substance is likely to have impacts, not just because of the biological effect of the substance, but also because it's going to impact on your life. Because if you're using a substance that regularly, what aren't you doing while you are intoxicated um, and it's that's true with alcohol and that's true with um with all sorts of substances that when a substance starts to take that kind of priority in your life it might well push other things off kilter and so it's not just the sort of biological effects that you need to be aware of but also the social effects the effect it's having on your relationships with your family and your friends and your ability to do the work that you need to be doing and all of that kind of thing as well so the sort of social and environmental aspects alongside the biological ones 
Um, Paul, also known as Pitacule, asks, um, is there a correlation between how psychoactive a drug is and how addictive it is? And if so, is there a causal link? Oh, I've never, I like the concept of how psychoactive a substance is. I'm not sure how you would quantify that, though. I mean, I guess you'd say caffeine isn't particularly psychoactive, nicotine isn't particularly psychoactive. But then would you say that is a psychedelic experience more psychoactive than an experience that um, really changes your kind of mood for example like I don't so I don't know what in terms of how psychoactive they're definitely so one of the things that impacts on how addictive a substance is which I mentioned in the talk is the route of administration so how quickly it gets into your brain really impacts on how on how addictive it is um, but also something quite strange seems to be that psychedelic substances so LSD mushrooms um, DMT uh mescaline these don't seem to have kind of addictive properties and that might be because they have this kind of weird thing where if you take if you take it very quickly in succession you you don't experience anything at all the t your tolerance to it builds really really quickly and then goes away again quite quickly but if you tr if you take it very frequently you won't experience an effect the second time you have to kind of wait a bit and also potentially because it's such a mind-altering experience that people people quite often report not wanting to take it too regularly because it's something that is 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 quite intense and well certainly with some of these substances can last a really really long time so maybe in that if you think that psychedelics are more psychoactive then then probably it's not in the direction that you'd think it is. That actually something like nicotine, which isn't isn't particularly psychoactive, but is incredibly addictive. Whereas something like um, LSD, which is mind altering for many hours, isn't very addictive. So so probably not would be my slightly waffly answer to that question. Sorry. <laughs> Andrew in Cambridgeshire um, asks, why do you think we are essentially still at just say no? And any nuanced statements get stamped on. Would it take uh, what would it so what would it take to get a more balanced public discussion? So I mean I I really do think that um, that the situation is improving in terms of the discussion around drugs. I think we're getting a bit more grown up about it, um, but maybe that's just because I've been working in this field now for about ten years, and so I'm just more I'm more aware of the conversations that are going on. Um, I do feel like the public discourse around drugs has progressed beyond all drugs are bad and all drugs are the same. Like we do see, the, certainly the media like the stories about potential um, therapeutic benefits of substances. I do think there's definitely still a problem that we sort of see alcohol as something that's fine and then, but then illicit drug use is really bad and there is kind of still this divide. Um, I don't know what it would take to get a more, balanced public discussion I think I think we are getting there and I think people are I guess it's people being more willing to sort of talk about their own substance use and it become a bit more normalized and real like not just the the kind of extreme examples of my life was ruined by taking a substance something a little bit more honest that I don't know. I, there's still a massive hypocrisy and a lot of it's tied to race and class. Like it really, really made me angry in the run up to um, 
the most recent uh, Tory leadership campaign, where it seemed to be a sort of competition as to um, who could who could reveal their sort of drug shame, like um, Michael Gove talking about was it cocaine and Rory Stewart talking about opium use and all of this. And it's like the hypocrisy of sitting there and going, oh, yes, I did it and I regret it. While there are young black kids being sort of stopped and searched um, for. uh, I saw one a report in the media yesterday about sort of flakes of cannabis in the footwell of a car, maybe. And that led to someone being stopped and searched. And you're just thinking it's the hypocrisy makes me so furious. And I think that that is still a real problem that the people who make this policy are are above it basically and that if you are if you are white and middle class you can you can ha- take cocaine at parties and be absolutely fine um and and that's fundamentally unfair and hypocritical um so I think that's a real problem yeah, I'm not sure I particularly answered that question very well. I just had a bit of a rant, but sorry. No, it's all good. That's what you're here <laughs> That's for. What you're getting. <laughs> also, I've got bad news for questions coming up, and that my cat has just wandered off downstairs. I'm really sorry. Uh, he might. Here. He might come back. <laughs> um, we'll go on to the next question, and we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully save that question for when he's returned. Um, Paul, aka a Pitticule, again um, asks. Some people claim to get high on things other than drugs, such as, for instance, music. Has any research been done on this? And if so, with what results? So I don't know of any research that's been done on this. And I guess it sort of depends on what you mean by gets high. Because, like, the sort of thing, like, there are definitely things that can release, like, serotonin and dopamine in your brain, which is kind of what a lot of, or some illicit like recreational substances do uh things like having sex or having uh, eating a really nice meal eating some chocolate you know these kind of things do release the same the same sort of chemicals in your brain for for to use a bit of a not good enough analogy but um so potentially like the you do sort of experience a buzz from things or or that kind of thing i don't know about research that's looked into it but certainly when when research comes out that says like cheese is is as addictive as heroin or crack or whatever, I mean that's kind of the same thing. Saying like the nucleus accumbens in the brain. Um, so I, the, in the addiction group that I work in, we have a little thing where we sort of share the the most egregious examples of this, like the nucleus accumbens that's been linked to everything. And like, like yeah, that doesn't mean something is addictive just because the nucleus accumbens fires. It just means that it's nice. <laughs> like cheese is nice and yeah. chocolate is nice and sex is nice and alcohol is nice at times. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's... I don't think there's been sort of good quality research definitely done on people getting high on things like music, but um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in why drugs and music go together. And I think that's probably something that's kind of the same type of thing as what you're asking. Yeah. Uh, Another question from anonymous. Um, Is the banning of drugs truly based on harm? Assuming, assume someone created, uh, invented a hundred percent safe alternative to an existing illicit drug drug, do you think it would still be banned? Uh, I mean, 
the evidence suggests very much that the banning of drugs is definitely not based on risk of harm because otherwise alcohol and tobacco are probably two of the most harmful drugs and um i like you might think maybe well that's just because they're the most used ones but actually um looking at the ons data in terms of number of deaths and the data in terms of number of people who use if you compare mdma to alcohol and you sort of scale up MDMA used to be the same number of people as alcohol, it's, that would still be around a quarter of the deaths that you see from alcohol from MDMA. And that's in a, in a situation where MDMA is illicit and so you're, you don't know what dose you're taking and that kind of thing. And obviously that's like very much back, uh, back of a fag packet, I was going to say. Back of an envelope is probably a better, better way of putting it. But um, it's, not, it's not a great calculation, but... Um, David Nutt has published a paper and he updated it in 2007, I think, where he um, they looked at drug harms um, in terms of harm to the, the individual using and harm to society. And they found that if you combine both of those, alcohol topped the chart of harms. I mean, heroin was pretty harmful, but then substance and nicotine, tobacco rather, cigarettes were pretty high up there. Um, and substances like um, cannabis and psychedelics in particular were very, very low down the other end. So it's, it's difficult to quantify, but it certainly, I mean, it seems quite arbitrary which, which substances ended up licit and which ended up illicit. So in terms of the other part of that question about if a 100% safe um, substance was created, I, I don't know quite, I mean... 100% safe is pretty pretty bold claim so I'm not sure but um yeah I think certainly the uh new psychoactive substances I mean they're definitely not 100% safe but um there, there does seem to still be this kind of knee-jerk people are taking something and having a good time we must ban it immediately kind of things but alcohol is fine the thing with 100% safe thing is it would still have a psychological psychological effect on you which would mean that it couldn't inherently be 100% safe because exactly. there will be a psychological effect that could um, create addiction even if it's not physically addictive a psychological addiction which yeah and also there's there's such an impact of who you are on your experience when you take a take a psychoactive substance and that if like I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced with alcohol that if you're in a particularly low mood and you you start to drink and you think it's going to be great and actually you end up crying in the toilets because it's definitely not a good idea to add a psychoactive substance into the mix of your already low mood. So it's it's often referred to as set and setting. So sort of where you are, who you're with and how you're feeling really impact on the type of experience you have. And that's true of pretty much all psychoactive substances, that it's not just the sort of biological effect of the substance and even that will have individual differences depending on your size and your metabolism and your set your biological sex and that kind of thing but also um yeah like your mood and who you're with and all of these kind of things also have there's a huge expectation effects on taking a substance but also effects on um depending on how you're feeling so trying to take all of those things into account i think you'd never be able to create something 100 percent safe you're right um, next question comes from Mart. Um, is the misuse of the term drugs and alcohol instead of alcohol and other drugs a problem people should be more pedantic about correcting when others say it? I mean, it does my head in, certainly. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I mean, at least when you say drugs and alcohol, it kind of acknowledges 
that they are the, they are similar and they deserve to be classed together. I mean, I I would always say drugs, including alcohol or something like that. Um, but yeah, it does. I mean, I I do think it's a problem and it lets people off the hook a lot in terms of thinking about not just their own personal alcohol use, but just this whole separate thing between the alcohol is something else. But then in the research community we are we are bad for this there is there are journals called drug and alcohol use and things like that so even in the scientific literature it's still very much a separate thing um so yeah i'm always pedantic about it i'm not but i'm not going to tell other people how to live their lives <laughs> um anonymous asks uh, given how diverse illicit drugs are in terms of chemistry effect and harm what connects them other than they make you feel good in a way you don't deserve um, I guess it's it's the sort of <laughs> I wouldn't say you don't deserve it. I mean, well, it's, like you do you is basically what I'm saying. Um, but in terms of, I think when we're talking about psychoactive substances, and that's the kind of the definition that I used at the beginning of the talk. So they have an effect on your mood or your perception or your brain functioning, a sort of transient effect that while you're intoxicated, it has this effect, and then the effect stops when you're no longer intoxicated. That's kind of a psychoactive substance but the effect that it has can be really really varied so obviously there are different types of illicit drugs so sort of stimulants versus depressants versus psychedelics versus some that don't really fit neatly into any categories um but yeah that that would be my way of, of sort of categorizing them together that they have a psychoactive effect and that's why i don't separate out illicit from licit drugs because um it's the psychoactive effect that's interesting to me anyway. Yeah. Uh, Katie asks, uh, what are your thoughts on neurotropic supplements? So this is, this is an interesting one. I don't know loads about nootropics, um, but when I was making, um, when I was making the podcast with Scroobius Pip, it was funny because he got quite into them and, and was sponsored by a nootropics company as far as I'm aware, the evidence for their efficacy is pretty low. Um, and I think quite a lot of this is expectation effect and placebo effect. And there ha But there haven't been very good quality studies looking into this. So I'm prepared to uh, find out I'm wrong when better studies are conducted. But at the moment, um, I think that they're probably not worth not worth the money. That's my personal opinion. Um, and I think there's another question later on about um, about cognitive enhancers. So I'll talk about them then. Um, but uh, yeah, nootropics, I'm sceptical about, certainly. I'd, I'd love to be proved wrong. It'd be great if there was there was sort of... I mean, I, th I think the chances of them doing much more than caffeine are slim to none, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, I think we've sort of covered this one quite a bit already, but we'll ask it anyway. Anonymous would like to know, how dangerous is alcohol to society? Uh, well, I mean, if you go, if you look at the Office, Office for National Statistics um, data, there have been sort of, there are thousands of deaths from alcohol every year, and that's quite a narrow definition of, of um, deaths from alcohol. So it doesn't include things like accidents when you're intoxicated and that kind of thing. I mean, alcohol is linked to risky, um, risky sexual behaviour, unwanted pregnancies, 
the evidence of alcohol being linked to kind of aggression is a bit weaker. But I mean, you only have to go to a city centre. I mean, not at the moment, obviously, none of us are going to city centres. But, you know, you only had to go to a city centre on a Friday or Saturday night um, to see that um, alcohol intoxication and um, and sort of confrontation seems to increase around alcohol. I think that people may be, um, it's not necessarily that alcohol increases aggression, but it might it might impair your ability to read someone else. So a neutral face might look more aggressive to you when you're intoxicated. And then that can obviously, if the other person is intoxicated too, then you can see how that could quite quickly escalate to a problem <laughs> where previously you just walk past each other. When, when you're intoxicated, that might turn into a, what are you looking at kind of thing. Um, so, and, and obviously not just death, but um, Ill, illness, long-term illness related to alcohol use. Alcohol is causally associated with seven different types of cancer. And it doesn't increase your risk a lot for those types of cancer. But it, but given how many of us drink, that becomes at a population level sort of meaningful, meaningful numbers, even though you as an individual are unlikely to suffer as a population there is more cancer because of alcohol in our society. So, yeah, and it, and it's such a it's such a weird drug to be the drug of choice. It's it has an effect on almost all of the neurotransmitters in our brain, and that's why it's really difficult to predict what kind of a intoxication experience you'll have. It's also what's called biphasic. So, as your as your as your blood alcohol level is coming up, you can feel very different to when it's coming down again. Um, in terms of sort of you, when you first start drinking you might feel really chatty and you might feel a bit more energized and then then as it comes down you start, start feeling really low exactly like you lose your fine motor control really quickly but also it's one of those substances that you only need a little bit of it to impair your judgment so you might go out with the best intentions in the world to just have one pint but once you've had one pint the idea of four more pints suddenly seems like a brilliant idea and sod your meeting at 9am with your boss you know so it, it's that's kind of a problem with alcohol as well that it's 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 quite moorish <laughs> or or rather it impairs your judgment to go no oh, hang on i said i was going to have one and then go home so yeah i don't know whether i want to say that it's sort of dangerous or harmful to society but certainly it's very pervasive in our society and i think we have a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol in terms of whatever's going on in your life alcohol I mean, I mean, maybe I mean a tiny exception exception to that is like I'm pregnant at the moment, so I'm I'm in that one position in my life where people aren't constantly saying to me, "Oh, why don't you have a drink?" And in fact, even when you're pregnant, people still say, "Mom, you can have one, can't you? One or two." Um, but alcohol is so ingrained in our society that if you're celebrating something, it's oh, have a drink. If you're if something goes wrong, it's like oh, commiserations. Let's go to the pub and drown our sorrows. If you've got something to yeah, just um, wet the baby's head. You know, you want to go and celebrate with a pint. Um, and if you're if you're going on a first date, it will almost certainly involve alcohol. Um, if you're seeing people that you haven't seen for a long time, it will involve alcohol. Um, it's just in every part of our society. Um, we're even getting to this sort of quite worrying. Oh, you've ha you've had a tough day. That you deserve a gin and tonic. You, like mummy needs her prosecco, kind of thing. And this that kind of um, way that alcohol is used to cope that can be really dangerous because that it's that 
pattern of alcohol use that's really linked to developing problems, sort of dependent drinking. And when that's really pushed, you can buy sort of keep calm and drink Prosecco posters to go up in your house or I heart gym badges or, you know, that kind of thing. It's sort of that's how alcohol is being sold to us now is something that we don't just want. We don't just like deserve it when we're having a nice time. We need it. We need it because we because things are tough. And so we need this alcohol. And, and that that I think is worrying. Um, Andrew from Cambridgeshire, um, if information about harm reduction gets confused, like with Leah Betts, and banning drugs doesn't work, what should we be telling people instead? I mean, that's a really good question. But I, and I think, I think, though, information about harm reduction, we just need to be better at delivering it. Like, we need to make sure that, I think part of, part of the reason that messages get confused is because people are squeamish about offering advice because they don't want to look like they're encouraging drug use and so that's why half messages get put out there and I think we should actually be much more honest about things and say look people are going to use substances so here's what we can do to make their experience as I want to say as safe as possible but I don't mean safe I mean as minimize the harm to the best degree possible and that means being much more open and honest about how people use substances. Um, I presented um, at a webinar in Ireland a couple of weeks ago about nitrous oxide, which is um, something that is uh, getting headlines all over the place at the moment. Um, and particularly, I think, during lockdown, nitrous is this is if you've seen the little silver canisters in parks next to balloons, um, that's nitrous oxide. It's what it's what it's gas and air basically that you would get in hospital um, without the air. <laughs> it's the gas of gas and air, and um, it's one of those substances where, as you're inhaling it, you feel a bit giggly and lightheaded. But as soon as you stop inhaling it, it's got a very short intoxication effect. So you you stop feeling intoxicated almost immediately. But um, this is a substance where uh, there's an awful lot of kind of fear around it. But actually, in terms of if as long as you use it in a in a sensible way, you don't inhale straight out of a pressurized canister where because the pressurized gas is incredibly cold, so it can cause frostbite and damage your throat. Um, you don't use it too frequently because it can lead to nerve damage and you don't use something that will seal over your mouth and nose because obviously if you do take too much and pass out you want whatever's whatever you're breathing in to be away from your mouth so that you can breathe again and that's what happens in hospital you're given a thing with a valve so if you do take too much you release the valve and you stop breathing it in um but if you've obviously if you've got something sealed over your mouth, then then you're putting yourself at much more risk. So there's really clear sort of harm reduction ways that we can talk about it. But because people are like, but it's a drug, we should be just encouraging people to stop using it. Then these messages get lost. So I think the way to do it is is to be really frank and to be really clear and open and acknowledge that people will be using these substances. And when we're giving people harm reduction advice telling people why we're giving them that advice because if Leah Betts had well I don't want to talk about an individual case uh in the way that I was just about to because I think that's unhelpful and, and obviously like I don't know the situation I wasn't there I've only seen what's been reported in the media but if a, if an individual knows why they need to drink water because it's the because they're dancing and because of all of that if that information has been provided to them in context 
then they can use that information much better than if they're just told MDMA, drink water. So I think, I don't think we should give up on harm reduction advice. I think we need to do it better. Um, Andrew Hossein asks, um, any truth or is it a myth about soldiers, Nazi SS in World War II, GIs in Vietnam, given uh, MDMA, meth, etc., to keep them going on the battlefield? I mean, I'm not a historian and uh, I will say that because uh, there's a lot of really fantastic medical historians who I think get very frustrated with scientists going, oh, yes, and the history shows this. But as far as I'm aware, there is substantial evidence that um, that methamphetamine and amphetamine were used in World War II uh, on both sides, actually. I think amphetamine by the Allies and methamphetamine um, by uh, by Nazi Germany um, to keep energy up, uh, to keep energy up, but, you know, as a sort of cognitive enhancer kind of kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've certainly seen seen it reported. Um, it does look like that. Yes. Um, anonymous asks, uh, what research has been done into LSD microdosing? Is this just hype or can it improve focus, creativity, etc.? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by microdosing. So this is the idea that you take a sub sub psychoactive amount of a psychedelic. So it shouldn't impact on your perception or anything like that. But people claim that it makes you uh, makes you more creative um, and potentially can improve mood and all of this kind of thing. And it's become really, really trendy trendy god i sound old uh, it's become really <laughs> but around sort of um like silicon valley bros for want of a better word um and and that sort of uh, like business business creativity kind of thing at the moment like i've said a lot there's very little evidence um there are actually studies going on at the moment where they're trying to conduct sort of blinded studies of this so people are um creating their their microdosing and then getting a sort of matched placebo and doing what's called an n of one trial where you take you take you don't know which one is which and you take one for a bit and then the other for a bit and then one for a bit and see if you can map any changes but obviously like how on earth do you judge creativity it's really really challenging thing to research so at the moment a lot of it's really based on anecdote and um yeah, I think, as again, like expectation effect here is going to have such a big effect. That's why the blinding is so important to try and understand this, because obviously if you ex- if you are taking something and you expect it to have an effect, then it's probably going to. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a really amazing episode of I think it's Reply All podcast where they try it and it's a really interesting kind of cautionary tale perhaps about a it's quite hard to uh <laughs> to um judge the dose and also you have to really keep on top of it otherwise you can end up sort of getting quite confused about when you should be taking it and when you shouldn't and there's all these complicated regimens to follow and yeah i would recommend i think it is reply all but yeah it's worth it's worth the listen right well i think we've got time for just two more questions one of which i think you've got a very disappointing answer for which is, please can we see your cat? It is disappointing, although I don't know whether you can see this. Can you see that? This yes. is 
see my spotlight now as well. But this is uh, my cat in the medium of uh, four album covers, <laughs> which was my Christmas present a couple of years ago. Uh, unfortunately, having been in the room for the entirety of my talk, uh, he obviously wandered off two minutes before his curtain call. So, cats, <laughs> what can you do? And to end on a catty note, um, being that you study uh, drug addiction, does your cat have a catnip habit? Uh, uh, given half the chance, I think he would. He he does have catnip occasionally. He gets very sort of drooly. Uh, he gets really, really hyper and then really, really drooly and, the, and lethargic. So he he's only allowed it on very special occasions. <laughs> Well, on that note, I'd like to say a massive thank you to you, uh, Susie. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Please put your hands together in the chat and um, we'll see you next week. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook follow at SITP on Twitter or head to our website at sitp.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.